This is Breaking the Dollar, the podcast that dismantles some of the biggest misconceptions about money. This is a, a monster. Reserve is probably not going to raise the interest rate for like when you get $1,000. There is a way for $50,000. Presented by Gainesville Coins. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Breaking the Dollar. I'm your host, Everett Millman. And this week's episode is going to move in a slightly different direction than I had originally intended. Um, As you might remember, I teased on last week's show that I would be having my colleague Stephen Cochran on as a guest for this episode. And indeed, um, we shot an entire episode. It was a pretty good conversation about the history of bimetallism. I thought it was a really engaging topic and it went well, but... We ran into some pretty serious technical difficulties, so we weren't able to get that episode up in time this week. So, in lieu of that, I thought I would just take a kind of general overview of what's been going on in markets, get everybody up to speed on some of the general trends that I've been seeing happening that you want to stay abreast of. Now, probably the first and foremost thing is that we are in the throes of earnings season. Third quarter is over, the fiscal quarter is over, and that means that big companies are reporting earnings. And so this is the main thing that everyone in the financial news has been focusing on, and for good reason. Something that's very interesting about earnings is that it takes a lot of the attention away from some of these bigger stories that the the media has focused on, namely, that is the trade war and a lot of the geopolitical problems that are going on all over the world. And undoubtedly, these things do have a profound effect on markets, but they're not, you might call them macro fundamentals, macroeconomic fundamentals. It's the big picture. A lot of times when we throw around the word fundamentals, it can seem kind of intimidating. You know, what does that mean? It's exactly what the word sounds like. It's just the basics. It is the basic factors that are underlying what is driving markets higher or lower. So earnings, things like the balance book or balance sheet of a company, these are the micro fundamentals you might think about. And obviously those things kind of lose importance in the media landscape when you have a big scary story like the trade war going on. So coincidentally, as we've entered earnings seasons and some of the first reports are trickling in, just at this same time, we've also had a bit of a detente in the trade war and Brexit. So there's a little more optimism regarding these big issues, at least more so than there has been with all of the kind of scary negative coverage that's been going on for months and months now. Just to keep in mind and put it in perspective, That's very different from saying that these two overarching issues have been anything like resolved. We're nowhere close to a resolution on either front. But if you have noticed in the news, there has been a little bit of progress in Brexit. And again, that's not purely a political topic. You know, Brexit is all about trade relationships, how those trade relationships are changing from the status quo. So I don't mean to say that it's not important. I mean, listen, I talk about it a lot. It's very important. But both Brexit and the trade war have essentially gone on in the background with not a lot of movement or progress in either direction other than our day-to-day perceptions about where the momentum is moving. So the point is that 
with some more optimistic takes in the news about both the trade war with China and Brexit, we're getting a bit of a relief rally. You know, attention is turning instead, like I said, to those more basic fundamentals like earnings. And thus far, third quarter earnings have been sort of surprising to the upside. They've been relatively good. About four-fifths of the company that have reported third quarter earnings so far have beaten their expectations to the upside. That's pretty good news, especially for people who are paying attention to the underlying economy. Not just what's going on in the stock market, but how are companies in the economy actually doing? One caveat I would like to point out with that is there's a general period of time where companies in the broader markets will report their quarterly earnings. It's usually a time frame of, I think, about 40 days after the end of the quarter. So not surprisingly, a lot of the early reports are usually the good ones. We will still have more companies over the next couple of weeks continuing to report, And as you see, as we get into November, a lot of the late reporters, not always, but usually are going to be companies that don't have very optimistic news to share, probably missed their price targets and their expectations for the quarter. So I think that will bring down some of the optimism. Now, I don't talk about the stock market all the time, obviously. It's not my main area of expertise, but I do pay attention and I understand a lot of what goes on in the equity markets. And it's interesting, um, I had a discussion earlier this week with a Reuters reporter named Shriashi Sanyal, and she was asking me about this kind of shift away from paying attention to the trade war and some of the optimism, and that a lot of the earnings reports are beating expectations. And something that was interesting that we agreed upon is it's actually easier to beat expectations when the bar is set lower. And that's precisely what we've seen over the past several months is that most of the stories about the economy have been tilting toward the negative. And again, deservedly so. There are a lot of signals and trends out there that are not encouraging and that people should be heeding and paying attention to before the problem gets too far gone. But a recurring recurring theme that I come back to a lot is that that progression is not a straight line. You know, there's a lot of volatility in between, a lot of ups and downs, a lot of shifts in sentiment and expectations. And so it's pretty easy to follow the logic that if we've had expectations generally pulled back and beaten down for several months, it makes it easier to clear that bar and to exceed expectations and to get everyone optimistic again. Given all of that, however, It doesn't mean that those reasons for pessimism have just disappeared. As I said, it's not as if Brexit or the trade war has actually been resolved. We've just got some glimmers of hope, some reasons to be encouraged. But nonetheless, a lot of those underlying issues are still going to be with us, and they're not really going anywhere. For instance, the Federal Reserve is still intervening in the repo markets, And it's doing so to the tune of about $60 billion in extra liquidity every single day. This was something that we brought up on a previous episode where I talked about panic in the repo markets. And my expectation for that a few weeks ago was that this would not be a temporary fix. This wasn't going to be kind of a one-off event that was quickly resolved. Instead, what we're seeing, as I had expected, is that this is going to continue for a rather prolonged amount of time. 
So I do want to caution everyone from losing that underlying narrative about where we're going, not in the next month or three months financial markets, but over the medium term, over the next 18 months or two years, because that's really the, the time scale that you need to be thinking about. A useful way to think of it that I've heard it termed before is separating the signal from the noise. And really, that's just a good way to think about the news and information in general, is that mixed in with the important stuff, the signal, there's always going to be a bunch of noise. There's going to be a lot of other, not necessarily irrelevant information, but information that if you take it too seriously, it could lead you the wrong direction. Might be something that's fleeting. It might be based more off of people's perception and sentiment than the reality on the ground. And in many cases, that's precisely what we're seeing with the coverage of these international issues, not just the trade war and Brexit. I know I keep coming back to that. But layered on top of that, you have the ongoing protests in Hong Kong. You have the renewed scrutiny of U.S. policy in the war in Syria. You have the rise of protests against high taxes in several countries all around the world, in Spain and Lebanon, Latin America, and elsewhere. And again, these events do have important, profound, and measurable effects on how markets behave. All of those things, combined with some of the other topics that I, I've covered in the past on this show, like leverage loans, like the amount of debt that governments and corporations have taken on, all of this shouldn't be ignored, not just because it's not going anywhere. So more and more recently, I've been seeing a lot of interesting research into how the state of markets right now has a lot of parallels to 1929, right before the crash that kicked off the Great Depression. And again, there are many parallels to the early and mid-1970s, which was another time of transition in the global monetary system and essentially of a financial crisis. That's why something else that I'm keeping an eye on in markets coming up is that uh, on Thursday this week, the European Central Bank will hold another meeting where it is widely expected to institute more stimulus measures and interest rates, even though they're already incredibly low. So once again, I do think monetary policy will take center stage, and that's usually not a good thing. Because then investors and traders have to play this guessing game about what the policies instituted by central banks not only mean and what they're intended for, but where we're going next. What will be the consequences and outcomes? And one of the points that I've been making a lot recently is that a lot of the policies and measures undertaken by central banks, not just the Fed, but central banks all over the world, these are largely untested policies. These types of stimulus measures are largely experimental. And although I think the very short-term effects are well-studied and partly understood by the people who are making these policies, the longer-term effects, when you go out five or ten years, are not perfectly understood by anybody. They have no precedent. I think that's partly why every time there's a Fed meeting, it's been getting so much coverage. Everyone's opinions and perspectives and views have been hinging upon where are interest rates going. And of course, these are important questions. 
but they seem especially important right now in a way that they probably shouldn't be. You know, if the ship was sailing smoothly, if everything was going fine, policy should fade into the background. It should be debated by the academics, not everybody who is involved in the day-to-day operating of markets. At least that's my perspective on it. So other than that and uh, some of the wonky policy debates, um, the other main thing that has grabbed my interest lately in markets is this running story about some of the tech unicorns, the Silicon Valley companies that are supposed to be innovators, they're disruptive, they're these new companies that are pushing the edges of the financial frontiers. Of course, that's an exciting story and they always get coverage. And in this case, I'm talking about companies like Uber and Lyft. And the big one lately is WeWork. Now, you may not have heard of WeWork if you don't work in office space uh, downtown in a big city. But basically, it was a startup company that had an, I guess you could say, unusual business model where they essentially rented out space in office buildings to different companies. But they did it on a very small and efficient basis. And of course, like any unicorn company, they made a lot of appeals to using technology and being a lean operation and maximizing efficiencies, all really good sounding things. And if you don't know what I mean by unicorn, that is the sort of tongue-in-cheek term that is given to the startup companies that don't perfectly fit into a box about what sector or industry they're supposed to be in. But WeWork was the darling of venture capital and private investment for several years. Like many unicorns and startups, they were not turning a profit, yet the company was valued at many billions of dollars. Without getting too deep into the detail of it, essentially, WeWork attempted an initial public offering, an IPO, and it did not garner nearly the amount of investment at its initial offering price that the company and its financial backers had expected. Now, there were two problems with this. One is that the company was heavily in debt. They took on a lot of debt to fund their operations and get started, which is normal, of course, for any company. But they did this to a very large extent because they had such outrageously high growth expectations. And so the failure of the IPO for WeWork is sort of a poster child for this trend that had been going on in the financial markets for several years now, basically since the big tech boom about five or six years ago. And that is the trend of companies like this who have a very exciting growth story but are heavily indebted and are not even close to turning a profit very quickly going from the most beloved stock on Wall Street to the most hated one. And so that's what's caught my eye about WeWork is that the news is now inundated with stories about the tragic comedy of WeWork's downfall. Not only have WeWork's financial backers like the Japanese multinational SoftBank and J.P. Morgan Chase, they've had to step in and extend even greater lines of credit to keep the company afloat. But the story gets worse in that the company's founder and CEO just stepped down from the board of directors kind of an infamy while the company is in financial distress. 
And yet he'll be walking away with a $1.7 billion severance. That's billion with a B. And so naturally, this is garnering a lot of media attention, a lot of negative attention, because most of us don't really understand how someone could leave their position at a company that is basically failing and yet become a billionaire in the process. As I said, it really is a tragic, comedic, you know, tragic comedy story. I don't mean to pile on to WeWork. I just think it really is a sign of the times. By no means do I think they will be the only company that this happens to. There are a lot of other candidates out there that are companies that have multi-billion dollar valuations. You know, their market capitalization is rather high, and yet they lose money each and every quarter. You know, I'm not naive. I understand that growth companies will lose money for a certain amount of time before they start growing into something profitable. That's precisely what we saw with Amazon and Netflix. But to get back to the nickname unicorn, what is a unicorn? It is something that is one of a kind and very well maybe a fairy tale, something that cannot exist. That's why I think that's such an appropriate term for these companies is that in many cases. So to me, the fact that this is finally becoming a problem, for years this went on not unnoticed but kind of unquestioned. That's how these valuations got so high. You know, WeWork had been building up its market cap for several years. That's how we got to this. I think that markets are finally starting to wake up and we are seeing a shift back to reality. In a lot of places in the financial media, you'll see this described or encapsulated as a cyclical shift from growth to value and value stocks being defined as companies that are not necessarily exciting and expected to grow massively in the near future, but they're consistent and they're perhaps undervalued, making them a good deal at their current price. Now, to me, the ultimate example of a cyclical shift from growth to value would be the precious metals, too. As a stable store of value, a way to preserve wealth, as a hedge against inflation, there really is no more cyclically defensive move you can make other than purchasing precious metals. So in my opinion, we're in the middle of that shift. It hasn't already happened. And so the most obvious recent evidence for this is that gold and silver prices have largely pulled back in the past month or so. In September, gold was at over a six-year high. It was well over $1,500 an ounce, and now it has pulled back to just below $1,500 an ounce. A lot of times I get asked questions like, if your thesis about the global economy and why precious metals have been going up is accurate, well, then why are they going down now? And as I said early on in the episode, it's not a straight line progression. There's always going to be swings back and forth in volatility. That's how markets work. And so that's why I think we've seen this recent pullback in the precious metals. And again, I'm not writing it off. It doesn't mean that the price drop means nothing. Quite to the contrary, that's where I get my conclusion that we have not fully made the cyclical turn yet to value and defensive portfolio management. It's not an overnight thing. And so to me, we're still right in the middle of that process. That wraps up today's episode. I hope you found it informative. As always, we really appreciate you tuning in. Love all the listeners out there. 
Be sure to join us next week where I will be tackling the origins of certain taxes. That's the topic everybody, if they're not at least interested in, uh, it does affect their life. So don't miss that one. Be sure to check it out. Today's episode was presented by our sponsors, Gainesville Coins. You can find out more at GainesvilleCoins.com. If you enjoyed today's show, we encourage you to go to iTunes and subscribe, leave a review, and leave a rating. The views and opinions expressed on the show are for informational purposes only and should not be used or construed as professional investment advice. 